Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, coming at you from the lab, your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. And last but not least, this is Praz the Sandman, sending your mind and your body on a wild adventure through the operating room and the radio waves. Yeehaw! Yippee ki yay indeed. The holidays are coming up, and... I think a big part of the attraction is that sense of nostalgia that it brings back to all of us. Those smells from the kitchen, the feasts, presents under the tree or around the menorah or the Festivus pole, really whatever holiday you end up celebrating this time of year. But I think one of my fondest nostalgia memories is one that is unique to our generation. And that is, uh, do you guys remember playing games in the computer labs? You know, when Dude. schools were the only place you could find a computer? Oh, yeah. You, you had, oh, yeah. You, you had, um, like, classic arcade game ports, and you had, um, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? Oh, a classic. And then, like, if you wanted to just blow your entire day in front of the computer, it would be, I don't know if I ever finished this game, but Oregon Trail. Is that game beatable? It's it's beatable, but you sure would be real lonely at the end of it. You start with a party of 20, and then, you know, little <laughs> Sally has dysentery, and Timothy, the pharmacist, got run over by a buffalo. And next thing you know, if you make if anyone even makes it to the town, they're just a trail of corpses in their wake. Well, no, but <laughs> well, no, but you usually also have like babies and stuff. So you just you don't necessarily shrink your party. You just end up with like a brand new party. Yeah, interestingly enough, no one dies in childhood. 
Well, let's let's run down the list, shall we? Bear attacks, syphilis, bullet wounds, malaria, scalpings, cholera. cholera. <laughs> Thought you would get me. <laughs> arrows, arrows shot in the skull, scurvy, rabies, uh, axe mishaps, crushings by wagon wheels, drownings fording the river. You know, you have died of dysentery. Susie has measles. We would see these messages come up over and over and over again unless you were some kind of video game superstar. And they usually meant that your trek was delayed or even over. You know, then we would all take the time to just hunt buffalo so we could at least eat well before we all died. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you wanted to make it easy on yourself... I mean, I guess even back then the big banks ran everything, but you could start off as a banker and just have like a shit ton of money and just buy everything you needed from the start. And then how is money going to get the arrow out of your skull? (laughs) 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 No, no, no. I mean, you could, you could buy a bunch of supplies and, you know, therefore, like you could support your people. So at least you could avoid the avoidable stuff. Like, you know, you could, uh, if you, if you lost a wagon wheel, you could have just a ton of spares, or you could have just a bunch of food to start your journey. So you wouldn't have to worry about like, you know, having to hunt down mm-hmm. some animal that would mm-hmm. likewise you know, give you a parasitic infection and kill you. Well, this week, I think we should dive into both the video game and the actual organ trail and set off to learn a little bit about frontier medicine, medicine in the wild west. Let's go see the medicine in them thar hills. Whiskey, lager, salt. So we're going to be jumping back and forth between the game and the real Oregon Trail because a lot of the conditions that people were dealing with back then were... Well, a bit different from what we have today, to say the least. Even if they were the same bugs, the outcomes were much less optimistic. But before we get to all the trouble, let's let's start our game, plan our party, and fill our wagon. What does every great adventurer need for their mental and spiritual journey across the Oregon Trail? What Santos says wasn't entirely inaccurate. You did need quite a bit of money to get all the supplies you needed because you were going to be out there for six months and you would inevitably run out of things. But you also had to have supplies to build a settlement for when you finally arrived in Oregon, all one of you. A lot of food, things like coffee, no decaf unless you were a banker. Yeah, so you really needed to purchase everything that you would need, not just to move, but to live and resettle in a new place. So you would have to bring about six months worth of food, as well as farming and building supplies for when they had arrived. It's not like they were picking up and moving over to Portland with a voodoo donut already waiting for them. They They had to build it. Whatever food they had had to actually last six months. Yeah, that's true. And that means most of the space was dedicated to things like lentils, flour, beans, and then coffee, which even though most of the emigrants had no way of knowing it, probably saved thousands of lives on the trails because coffee has to be boiled. And even the worst coffee is going to be safer than a lot of the water that would be available along the way. Nice. Yeah. So it it would kind of force you to get the temperature of the water nice and high and inadvertently you'd kill everything along the way. I think this is 
well before we had like principles set in stone that uh boiling water for a certain period of time above 212 degrees Fahrenheit would kill microorganisms mostly because we weren't sure what right. microorganisms I didn't even think bacteria were. were a thing back at this time <laughs> I mean they were still a thing people just didn't know about them the yeah. <laughs> they weren't suddenly invented <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> we've had people like you know, Antoine von Leeuwenhoek in the 1600s and and early 1700s who actually did look at look unicellular organisms through some of the first microscopes so we knew about you know these wee beasties but i don't think that the theories you know like germ theory and Establishing that illness came from these little guys. On top well of that, there was that no time. antibiotics, right? Penicillin didn't come around until the early 1900s. You're, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, antibiotics really made their breakthrough in common society around like World War so II. Back then, if you had an infection, you either like toughed it out or you perished from it. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's a lot like how we deal with very severe infection nowadays. You know, when the antibiotics won't work and you just have to kind of ride it through and you're in the infection, or sorry, the uh, ICU, the intensive care unit, you just yeah. provide supportive care. You just give as much fluids and warmth and comfort as possible and you just cheer the, the uh, victim on mm -hmm. to like fight as hard as they can. So we're waiting for the 1850s for Louis Pasteur to come around. And we're talking about the uh, 1880s when Robert Cook came around. And, and before the first transcontinental railroad was completed, which was in 1869. An easy to remember date because I'm very immature. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we've got bacteria right now. We know about them. And we, we, you know, viruses still haven't been discovered until the 1890s. So, you know, here in the 1830s and 1840s, when the Oregon Trail was really being utilized, we still don't know what the heck is going on with disease. You know, it's just we're, we're we know that we should avoid certain things. And there's a few theories on things like cleanliness and cooking. But, you know, the real breakthroughs on how not to die from infection really haven't happened. So back then, if you had an infection, you either like toughed it out or you perished from it. Right. And that's really where we get into things because about one in 10 people who set off on the Oregon Trail did not survive. The two, you know what? Before I go into that, yeah. do you guys know where the Oregon Trail went? What was the beginning and end point? The end, I assume the end was Oregon. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, yes. I'm glad that you still know that. No, I have no idea what it is. <laughs> but how long was how long was the actual trail itself? Well, uh, you're starting in New England, right? So, yeah. So it started in Missouri. So oh, if you were traveling the entire thing, oh, it began in Missouri okay. and okay. snaked through Kansas, yeah. Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho, and Oregon. Wait, wait, so you didn't really go through Colorado and the Rocky Mountains and stuff and mountain passes? It touched parts of Wyoming and Idaho, 
but most people who began to most people who wanted to travel the trail began in St. Louis in okay. early spring. Oh, okay, gotcha. Now remember, you could spend more time in town and buy extra supplies, but that means you would have to go through the mountainous parts of the trail in winter. And that usually killed a couple people of frostbite. Gotcha. Yeah. I understand. Okay. So you'd you try to actually avoid the highest mountains because there really was no protection from the elements. Um, so you tried to stay through like mountain passes as much in the winter or as much in the summer as possible. So the Oregon Trail is a 2,170 mile or for our metric friends, 3,490 3, mile east to west large wagon wheeled route. Ended at Fort Vancouver and then crossed the Columbia River so to get to did Oregon. Did end up in what's now Canada? That Vancouver was actually Vancouver, Washington. It's a little bit of a misnomer. So it was Fort Vancouver. The two biggest causes of death on the Oregon Trail were disease and accidents. And it's estimated that about 6 to 10% of everyone who set off on the trail succumbed to some form of illness, which means of the estimated 350,000 people who began the journey, disease claimed as many as 30,000 of them. And since the trail was 2,000 miles long, this would indicate, and here's the fun math. Let's see if I uh, and carry the one and bring out the abacus and go on a calculator. That means there's an average of about 10 to 15 deaths per mile. That's not miles per hour. That's every 10 to 15 or every mile, 10 to 15 people on average were dropping dead. Now, they weren't all in the same party. No, no. <laughs> unless you set yourself to hard difficulty. Now, these were wagons kind of trundling along you know, kind of driven by oxen and people walking along. So we're talking about like five to 10 miles an hour maximum, right? Right. Most of the time, travelers would only make it about 13 to 15 miles in a day. So, you know, about one mile for every person dropping dead. Well, (laughs) so that's kind of interesting because that's, you're saying that every day you'd see a death. Again, this is over the lifetime of the trail's use, which did range from the 1830s all the way to as late as 1869. So again, unless you were playing on hard difficulty, you were not seeing 10 to 15 people drop dead every single mile. But collectively, based on how many people took the trail and how many died on it, that was what the average worked out. And our, so our overwhelming burden was infectious disease. Most people, I think it's fair to say, we wouldn't succumb to starvation because we had plenty of kind of animals to kill. And, you know, if you were decent with a gun and you had a few crops along the way. But otherwise, if you had an accident, then you introduced a new route for infection, usually, if it was you know, skin was torn open either by something like an arrow or you broke a bone and the bone tore through the skin. The disease with the absolute worst reputation along the trail was Asiatic cholera. Cholera. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> who says tomato? The same people who say cholera. <laughs> I, 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 I doubt that. 
cholera was known as the unseen destroyer, and it's largely caused by unsanitary conditions. People camping amid garbage from previous parties would pick up the disease and then spread it themselves. Uh, People could be in good spirits in the morning and then in agony by noon and dead by evening because that's more poetic. (laughs) Yeah, you could switch that up uh, any other way as well. Symptoms started usually with a stomach ache that would increase in pain, then diarrhea, vomiting until you looked like a tiny little prune. And this epidemic thrived along the trail with peaking around 1850 when you had the largest number of travelers going west, including prospectors and would-be gold miners (laughs) on the overland trails in 1849. Largely, though, it was prevalent on the Great Plains. So once people were past Fort Laramie and into the mountains, people were pretty safe from cholera at the higher elevations. So let's let's turn it over to our infectious disease doc to tell us a little bit about cholera and then some of the other diseases you could expect to see along the All right. So cholera is a bacterial infection. It's caused by a little waterborne bacteria called Vibria cholera. Uh, <laughs> surprise. And this <laughs> actually, and this little bacteria lives water. in water and it spread either fecal oral, you can say, which means that someone or something poops it out into a water source. You inadvertently uh, get some of that water to drink and you don't process that water properly before you drink it. So the really typical thing that will happen, for instance, if you have villages or towns, is that there will be an outbreak of cholera in a town upstream and then they will poop. It will get into the groundwater and downstream of the same river, the next village downstream will all start to get cholera as they start to use that same you know, poop water as drinking water. So it's not surpri- so it's not surprising that you would see cholera in spots along the Oregon Trail where people congregate. If you had a spot where a lot of people would meet up to either exchange supplies or stop and rest, and you know, there really weren't good sanitation type principles that had been laid out yet, meaning that you should put the outhouse or the place that you poop X number of feet away from where you collect drinking water and make sure that wherever you dig the poop trench, um, you don't have, you know, that area intermingling with the groundwater that will become your well water. That's number one. If you So that's one way to spread it. The other way to spread it is that when people were taking care of other people with cholera, they didn't wash their hands before they tended to themselves, eating or drinking. So they would end up contracting cholera from the very people who they were trying to save. And that's a very common theme that you see in overcrowded areas um, where you can't really clean yourself off. Now, the disease itself is kind of really simple and really horrible. Vibria cholerae will secrete a toxin which subsequently causes your intestines to start secreting. So rather than absorbing the water and the nutrients which you're supposed to take up from food, um, the pump... So it, it forces water outside of your cells. 
Right, exactly. So the pump goes the opposite way. So water specifically, but also salts, get pumped from your body out into the intestinal lumen, and then you poop it out in large quantities. So um, the, the typical thing that people will talk about, because pathologists absolutely love comparing gross bodily functions to food, is they'll call it rice water diarrhea. Because even when you can't take in any food, you will just have diarrhea coming out and the cells that are just sloughing off, there's going to be no stool in there, but just water and cells and salt is going to look like rice water. So that kind of, you know, cloudy water that you get after you boil rice or cook rice. So this is going to continue. um, And essentially, you're not going to be able to cape up the water and electrolyte intake with your output, and this is why you die. And there was no Pioneer Gatorade to treat this. The only available treatment in the game was a medicine known as laudanum, which do you guys recall knowing (laughs) around fourth or fifth grade that laudanum was just opium? (laughs) Uh, And here I thought I was doing my body good. Wow, that completely ruined that childhood um, perception. Yeah, (laughs) but... Uh, Yeah, so the treatment, that basically means that the treatment for this infectious diarrhea was taking so much heroin that your bowels would just stop moving entirely. Right, and that wouldn't really help anything because you were still secreting water into the intestinal lumen, meaning into your poop. It's just that the normal peristalsis, meaning the, the movement of your intestines to kind of squeeze food and water down the pipe, those muscular contractions would stop. And so those everything that that kind of accumulation of water would just kind of sit in your your gut. But you would still get dehydrated. Yeah, so the treatment on the trail was largely just drinking from streams, uh, trying to replace the fluid that you had lost, but also taking in a lot of the same bacteria that had caused things to begin with. Right, yeah. So you were basically just, uh, you were in a horrible, horrible loop of death. (laughs) Now, to briefly, briefly go off topic, cholera is still a pretty big problem in the world today. You may remember after uh, the outbreak in Haiti, after the earthquake there, and it spreads rapidly in areas where drinking water is contaminated. So the question is, Santos, would we have to worry about a cholera outbreak in, say, Puerto Rico right now? Yeah, that's a huge worry, amongst other things, because, you know, we're worried about mosquito-borne illnesses as well. But when you have poor sanitation, no access to drinking water, and then crowding, which you do on that little island, or you may have on that little island soon, then all it takes is a small group of people uh, to start with cholera, and then it will start to spread. So it is definitely a worry. Another place we think about it right now is in refugee camps around the world, because people are kind of huddled together, and again, they don't have sanitation or separation of where you poop from where you drink. That, That space just isn't there. And The biggest spot right now, which is a really critical, scary place for cholera, is the country of Yemen on the Arabian Peninsula. 
Oh no, you mean it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> You're just pooping on my parade. In the case of Haiti, they ended up with cholera because some of the rescue workers who came by had it. It's endemic to Nepal. And so they brought it over and it infiltrated. But right now, Puerto Rico is not an endemic location for cholera and they don't have it. So as long as the refugee camps are mindful of sanitation concerns, even with infrastructure down, there is a reasonable chance that another outbreak of that particular disease should not begin. Right. You do have to, just like you said, Josh, you have to have a seeding of the bacteria. It has to be there in the first place in order to start to spread. It doesn't come from nowhere. So let's move on to the next one. Usually, so Sandman developed cholera, and we'll say it was early enough in the trip that we were able to keep yeah. him alive with us. So now he's riding yeah. in the back of the wagon. But now, <laughs> oh no, Dr. Santosh has developed Another dysentery. <laughs> oh yeah, that's perfect. Another pooping disease, huh? Yeah, yeah, the kiss of death in the Oregon yeah. Trail. So, Santosh, <laughs> tell us about dysentery. Dysentery? <laughs> dysentery. Everybody shut up. <laughs> so, dysentery is a really generic term. And, Josh, I think it's this is one of your favorite little realms of expertise. Because dysentery really doesn't tell you what the infection is. It just tells you that you have bloody diarrhea. So this is actually more a gastrointestinal term than it is an infectious disease. That's true. It comes from the Greek roots, dis, meaning discord or yes. disorganization, and entery, meaning your enteric system. So <laughs> it basically right. means your intestines so, are discorded or discordant. Yeah, it's something we don't want to enter this field of... <laughs> So we have numerous causes of dysentery, and I think the list is a little too comprehensive to go through. It's, it's, it's pretty huge, but we can break it down into kind of three big subcategories. The first is viral dysentery. So you can get viruses like adenovirus, for instance, which can cause a bloody diarrhea or enterovirus. Um, bacteria like E. coli or Shigella will cause a dysentery. And then the most common parasitic infection is amoeba, so Entamoeba histolytica. Now, aside from those, there are numerous, numerous other causes. But the problem with these are they are absolutely myriad. Even if they did have things like antibiotics and antiparasitics at that time, which they didn't, um, you really didn't have any way to diagnose it out on the trail. Like, you know, you'd need a microscope or some, you know, kind of cool laboratory, you know, in order to diagnose whether it was bacterial, viral, or parasitic. And then if it was bacterial or parasitic, um, you know, your, your treatments were kind of zero. The problem with cholera is that you just you get dehydrated until you die and that can be a very rapid horrible death but with dysentery you really can just bleed out or you can get septic because the epithelium uh, uh, on the intestines can erode and that bacteria can go from inside your intestines to your bloodstream and you can get septic and you can die but usually just like with cholera Again, with dysentery, you die from dehydration out on the trail. You just poop until 
you couldn't poop anymore. So the two most common kinds likely encountered on the Oregon Trail were Shigella, which is a bacillary dysentery, and Entamoeba histolytica, which is an amoebic dysentery. So just like cholera and typhoid, it's contracted when people consume food or water contaminated with infected feces. So if you had, say, upstream a whole bunch of oxen and horses fording shallow rivers and relieving themselves as they are wont to do, and downstream another group is going through and you're drinking that water, well, there is one quick way to get it. Also, having anything other than whiskey or coffee to drink yep. would be another quick way to pick up some of these infected water sources. Would alcohol theoretically kill any of these germs once it got to the that part of the, the enteric system? No. Unfortunately, if it's in your intestines, then alcohol is pretty well processed and kind of not neutralized, but the antiseptic qualities of the alcohol really wouldn't affect the bacteria all the way down in your gut to the degree that you could actually, <laughs> you know, recover from the illness of it. Um, yeah, you'd, you'd feel a little happier, though. You know, that's good. You'd go for, like, the whiskey and the bourbon as, like, early trail anesthesia palliative care to kind of just people, you know, yeah, I know you're going to die, but you're going to die with a smile on your face. In addition to typhoid, dysentery, cholera, actually, did we talk about typhoid? Santosh, why don't you tell us about typhoid? No, we, we haven't brought up typhoid. Oh, joy. <laughs> Even better. We're doing all the poop diseases, like all at once. We're just getting it out of the way. We're flushing it out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be a party pooper. <laughs> I think you did, and I'm happy that you were. Um, so we'll we'll have the poop party, and then we can move on to other aspects of death on the Oregon Trail. Um, Salmonella typhi, which has since changed to Salmonella enterica serotype typhi. <laughs> that very specific subtype of Salmonella is one of the only species that can cause what is now called enteric fever. And this is very different from just having, you know, like diarrhea. Typhoid fever is a lot longer. It's a lot more insidious. And because of that, it could spread a lot for a lot farther because people could just have it and just keep shedding it for a long time. And then large amounts of people would die as a consequence of it. But essentially what would happen here is the salmonella bacteria instead of just staying in the intestines, will get out into the bloodstream. It's taken up by macrophages, which is, they're the big eating cells uh, that are supposed to kill the bacteria, but the bacteria can sit inside of the macrophages and live, believe it or not. They just hide in the immune system. And from there, they can spread around, they can go to lymph nodes, they can go to the liver and the gallbladder. And if they take up residence in the gallbladder, then what happens is, they're slowly secreted back out in, in from your bile duct back into your intestine. And that time, every time you poop, you're shedding out a little more and you're shedding out a little more. And you can have long periods of time with no symptoms, but eventually you'll get these fevers and this tiredness until you actually go into a kind of coma, like a, almost like a waking sleep. And then eventually you'll die. But in the process of all of this, 
anybody who accidentally gets that fecal matter on their hands, doesn't wash their hands properly, <laughs> eats something, you know, it will spread to more and more and more victims. And you'll have this kind of slow burning outbreak, um, which I think we've talked about before, John, but we have these other historical examples of cities where salmonella typhi was spread around over a long period of time by people who worked in places like cafeterias. And you know, Santosh, I, I feel bad forcing all this shit on you. <laughs> well, I'll just poop it right back out, I suppose. So how about we, we shift gears briefly and you can tell us about a respiratory disease, another very common one on the trail. Yeah, let's see what other enemies they encountered. <laughs> 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 so why don't you tell us about uh, let's let's take a dip into diphtheria oh yeah so we're you wanted me to go from like down below to up high now actually this is an interesting one because um this is very very pertinent to Praz's field of study if we start talking about diphtheria diphtheria is something that we encountered Everywhere in the world, uh, I should say everywhere in the quote unquote Western world until we got a vaccine. And thank God for this vaccine, Corine bacterium diphtheriae. And this is spread in a respiratory manner, which usually means in adults, it's coughing, sneezing. Um, but it's also in respiratory secretions among kids, which means like you, you like grab some snot, like you, uh, that kind of thing. And then you touch somebody or, or you're playing with the same toy. And then that kid goes and puts their hand in their mouth and then, you know, it spreads that way as well. And Josh, I'll tell you the truth. I live in the era of, you know, the diphtheria vaccine and I've never seen a case of diphtheria. But from what I hear tell, nose and throat symptoms, catarrhal phase where you look like you have a cold. Uh, and then what you get is this what's called a pseudomembrane over the airways in the back. So you get this glistening membrane which forms over the tonsils in the back of the throat. And if you were to take like a, a probe, like a metal probe, and touch the back of that membrane, it would bleed. And that was one of the most common ways that you could say that, oh, you have diphtheria. If you poke if you someone and they bleed? No, 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 no. If you take a, well, Pros can probably tell you, if you take a sedated person, because you don't want to do this when they're awake, and you use a blunt metal probe. Yeah, because they'll punch you. No, no. <laughs> well, you take a uh, you take a blunt metal probe just to touch the tonsils in the back. Um, just you know, if you need to move something out of the way as a surgeon, then it shouldn't just bleed. That soft stuff in the back, like tonsils and your palate, should just kind of move aside. Uh, you you shouldn't just get uh, sudden bleeding. Um, but the pseudomembrane uh, would form, and then you could get a blockage of the airway and of your esophagus as well. So you couldn't eat, you couldn't swallow. And if this blockage became severe enough, you would just stop breathing. So you would cough and cough and choke, uh, sometimes on your own saliva, or you would aspirate and get an aspiration pneumonia. And you that's how you would die. And these days, you could certainly um, treat that supportively, even without antibiotics. By just securing their airway and putting them on vent support as needed, but I imagine they didn't have that either in their 
six month supply worth of wagons? No, no, I'm I'm almost certain that you wouldn't encounter an intubation tray on the Oregon Trail. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of crash carts in the Conestoga wagons. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, nowadays you need you need antibiotic. If you can get any kind of antitoxin, you could do antitoxin for the diphtheria toxin. But uh, then, you know, you you need metronidazole or erythromycin, which will not be invented for a long, long time. At a certain point, some of the travelers on the trail would have to go over the mountains and they would contract what they referred to colloquially as mountain fever. Now, usually this was not fatal. You would be the ever-present intestinal discomfort, but also headaches, skin rashes, some shortness of breath, and fever. So most of these diseases or most of these symptoms could fit any number of diseases such as typhoid, scarlet fever, typhus, and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Uh, Quinine water was used to treat a lot of these, which quinine water you're probably more familiar with as a gin and tonic these days. That's, That's what it's evolved into. But what was Rocky Mountain? What would that look like for people on the Oregon Trail? Well, Rocky Mountain spotted fever is still very prevalent incidentally not really in the rocky mountains anymore <laughs> it's it's kind of a, a misnomer so you do find it uh in and around colorado occasionally but epidemiologically you're actually going to find it i guess more like wyoming we find it a lot more in appalachia actually so virginia and the carolinas alabama tennessee kentucky so um, it's it, it's kind of a misnomer to call it Rocky Mountain, but eh, who cares? So the this little bug is tick-borne. It's many it's many of our arthropod-borne illnesses, and it's a teeny little bacteria. It's called a rickettsia. Um, and what you would start off with are fevers and a headache. And Josh, let me tell you about headaches. This is one of these headaches which is horrible. You mean it's not like one of the super pleasant ones? <laughs> yeah, I was confused there for a second. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, we all we all talk about like a sinus headache, headache being around there, or a stress headache, and you can kind of classify these, and even infectious headaches. You know, meningitis is a really bad kind of all over headache. But the very typical headache of Rocky Mountain spotted fever, you don't always get it, but you get this really intense feeling right behind the eyes and then in the front of your head going to the temples. And people will talk about that, this horrible splitting headache along with the fever. And, Are but, you sh- and then, sure this isn't brain <laughs> freeze from Rocky Road what, fever? What no, no, that's delicious. <laughs> so what you will really see as a point of diagnosis is this purpuric rash. And this is the late stage which we all fear because once we start seeing this rash, it's a little bit like meningococcus, um, where if you have meningococcal sepsis, you know, when you start to see this rash, you're in big trouble. So you've got these about two to four days after the fever begins, um, these spots of purple, which appear 
um, like pinpoint dots. Um, and you'll start to see it over arms and legs first, especially around the wrists. And the interesting thing about it is uh, they are perforic, so they won't blanch. Um, so if you, if you were to put like a slide uh, over the skin, most rashers, they'll kind of fade or they'll kind turn like white. Typhoid. And then when you take or, the slide away, yeah. they'll, they'll come back. But this kind of a rash, even if you put pressure over it, the rash won't disappear. With that, you're going to get nausea, vomiting, stomach pain, and you'll get deep muscle aches. Um, and if you don't treat that at this point with antibiotics, you can progress to death. So that, that kind of wraps it up for the most common diseases on the trail. When we come back next time, we'll talk about the fallout from the accidental injuries and hunting and fording the river and some of the medicines in use. But that brings us to this week's Just the Tip. And since we are having a bit of a Wild West theme for our next few episodes, I figured the best just the tip would be something in the West, although not strictly on the Oregon Trail, as I'm going to be talking about hiking the wave in Arizona. (laughs) There are no waves in Arizona. It's a desert. (laughs) My favorite kind of beach. The wave in Arizona. Let's see. how, How do I explain it? Well, back in July 22nd, 2009, the world suddenly became aware of a miraculous place that was previously hidden to the masses. Why on that date? Because that is when Microsoft's Windows 7 was released, and it introduced us to the beautiful desktop wallpaper of the wave. Gorgeous red sandstone formation along the Utah-Arizona border at the Vermilion Cliffs National Monument. Oh, this is the thing that, like, every Windows 7 user would see when they opened their computer for the first time. So you can look that up right now. It's a very easy picture to find. And it is a gorgeous red sandstone rock formation that just looks as though it is rippling. And you can hike along and surf it. But it's not as easy to do as you might think. The Bureau of Land Management has actually limited foot traffic to only 20 people a day due to the overwhelming popularity of the site. So in in 2014 alone, there were over 50,000 people who applied, which means only 7,300 people were allowed in. That's a 14% success rate. I mean, this was to prevent, you know, ruining the environment, right? With like way too many people. Right. So you do, it. it is tricky to get a permit and you have to, as you can see, the chances are very small. But if you are able to obtain one, they allow dogs. You want to go in spring and fall when it's just cool enough that those rocks Stop. don't heat up enough to cook you. <laughs> So that's that's yes. it for just the tip. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. The I know we always love to say this, but please, please get all your vaccines. In childhood, if you haven't gotten them, catch up. Because the reason we don't see these horrible things anymore, a lot of them like diphtheria and measles, is because we're doing so well with vaccines in this country. Happy travels. Yeah. Now, if you disagree with us, you're wrong, but you are welcome to leave your comments, questions, and feedback. Links on how to contact us are down in the show notes. We're on Twitter. 
We're on Facebook. We're on Squarespace. And we are all over the web wherever podcasts can be found. We would love for you to rate and review us. And if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can follow any of those links. Our theme music is by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all of our co-hosts. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.